Hello, America. If you're looking for a roadmap to financial health and smart investing, remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. After your family and your health, your money and your investments should be number three on your life top 10 list. I am Mark Cooperstock, and along with my partner, Stephen Mulholland, a CFA charter holder and CFP, are the principals of Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management. Our firm is a registered investment advisor based in Los Angeles with one goal in mind, to provide thoughtful, generational, and tax-efficient investment advice while keeping a sharp eye on the economy and the markets. So come along, join us on this journey as we navigate the superhighway of financial news and global markets amidst the daily traffic of forecasters, speculators, and their conjecture. You have arrived. Remember, money meets at the intersection of Mulholland and Cooperstock. Along with engineer Griff in the booth, let's welcome my partner, Stephen Mulholland. Stephen, where are we going today? Thanks for the intro, Mark. How you doing, Griff? Doing pretty good, thanks. How are you? Excellent, thank you. Uh, where are we going today? So um, I'm gonna begin the podcast with the definition uh, that might sound a little strange on a financial podcast, uh, but it'll all fit in and make sense very shortly. And that is we're gonna start with the idea of intermittent reinforcement, Mark. Okay, let's tell everybody, what, including me, what, what does that mean? <laughs> so intermittent reinforcement is a conditioning schedule in which a reward or punishment is not administered every time the desired response is performed. This differs from continuous reinforcement, which is when the organism receives the reinforcement every time the desired response is performed. For example, on a continuous reinforcement schedule, a mouse who pulls a lever would receive food every single time it pulled the lever. On an intermittent reinforcement schedule, the mouse would only receive food every few times, randomly and unpredictably. There is an increased likelihood the desired behavior will continue with intermittent reinforcement conditioning, and the behavior lasts longer than continuous reinforcement. Gambling is an example of intermittent reinforcement. You don't win every time or win the same amount when using a slot machine. This wouldn't be exciting or fun. The reinforcement is intermittent and causes a positive and euphoric response in the brain that in some circumstances can lead to gambling addiction. So that is the textbook definition of intermittent reinforcement that I got from the internet. Uh, some very specific and modern examples that make the concept come to life uh, can be found uh, as the definition mentioned in Las Vegas or gambling uh, and also with social media. Uh, there's a wonderful podcast called Your Undivided Attention by the former uh, chief ethicist of Google, Tristan Harris, and his partner Azza Raskin, where they talk about uh, slot machines in Las Vegas uh, Mark, I don't know if you're aware or not. And oh, actually, this is probably really relevant. Um, Mark, you used to manage a casino in Los Angeles, right? A long time ago. That's right. Okay. Well, Griff and Mark, I'm going to tell you a gross but true story I learned from the podcast, which is people in Las Vegas uh, that play the slot machines get so addicted that there's a cohort of adults every night that rather than walk away from the slot machine, wear adult diapers so that they don't have to get in the chair and they can keep pulling the arm of the slot machine. Yeah, that, that's true. We, I, 
I remember stories from back, back I'm going back two decades uh, when I was involved in, in, in running a, one of the big card casinos in California. And literally, um, individuals would sit at the tables for 48 hours straight without getting up. And it got to the point where security had to escort them out the front door because the, the personal stench coming off them was so bad. So that's true. That actually occurs. 48 hours. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And, that and, and that, no, that's a really great example, and it underscores this idea. Um, so, so right off the, um, we should mention uh, early in this concept, too, is pretty much everyone is susceptible in some form uh, to, to this concept and this kind of addiction. Um, obviously, some people are predisposed more than others. Uh, I don't think I could ever sit for 48 hours to do anything, uh, let alone pull the arm of a slot machine. Uh, but the key concept that the casinos understand is you want the reward to be random and unpredictable. So if someone pulls a slot machine and they win a $10,000 prize, a $100,000 prize, uh, the next one they're going to lose all their money. The next 10 or 20 they're going to lose all their money. And they're forever chasing that high again. Um, and the, the adult diapers, the 48 hours helps demonstrate how strong the addiction can become. Uh, the premise of the podcast your undivided attention is to show how these same concepts have been mapped onto social media. So TikTok's a great example. Uh, TikTok understands this concept very well. And what they do is when someone's new to TikTok, uh, a noob, Mark, as your son would say, or my nephews, uh, when someone's a noob in TikTok, TikTok features those videos so that they get a whole bunch of likes. And then those new TikTokers will basically spend their entire experience trying to get as many likes as they initially got. So uh, TikTok does this. Uh, Instagram, there's well-known phenomenon on Instagram that when teenage girls post on, uh, posts on Instagram and they don't get a lot of likes, uh, they'll delete them and show more risque photos to get more likes. Uh, I've seen posts personally about people saying they're devastated when certain posts they put on don't get a lot of likes. Um, Twitter which uh, relates to one of my resolutions for 2021, which is to spend less time on Twitter. Um, every time you pull your thumb down, you get a continuous scroll feed of new information. And most of the time, you read a lot of uh, bad attempts at jokes or uh, information that's not that interesting. But every once in a while, you find a gold mine, a really great post that leads you to a book or an article or um, learn of somebody new or connect with someone. And the, again, the fact that that's totally random uh, makes it more addictive. So gambling, social media are all really good examples of uh, industries that are adept at, at exploiting the fact that humans, uh, and remember the study we talked about earlier was, was um, mice, uh, mice, monkeys, humans, there's something all in our brains that makes us susceptible to this addictive, uh, to get addicted to these intermittent rewards. So Mark, a long-winded answer to your initial question. What we're talking about today is day trading, uh, because day trading is another great example of this concept. Yeah, well, uh, I, I see now where, and I picked up on two key words in your in your you know, description, and that was euphoric and gambling, and um, it absolutely <laughs> describes, uh, I think, the the mentality and the expectation, although I think really unfounded. Uh, that many day traders, and especially new day traders, have today. Exactly, Mark. And uh, you, you've spoken to some individuals, as I have, 
uh, which uh, who have gotten into day trading and uh, the way they talk about trading, doesn't it sound similar to talking to a gambler? Oh, it, it is. Um, you know, somebody told me, I think it may have been you, Steve, that uh, your dad or, or someone in your family said to you, the worst thing that could happen is somebody um, when, when they sit down uh, and they make their first trade is that they hit it big because then they think they're, you know, they're infallible, that, oh, it's easy, right? Every, every time I, I hit enter and I buy something, I'm going to make money. It's that easy. It's just that easy, right? There's no science to it. You know, they must be brilliant. So it's, ex it's exactly right. Um, and it can be devastating yeah. in many, 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 many more circumstances than it's not devastating. Uh, that, that was uh, precisely my dad's comment. Um, as a reminder and a recurring theme on the podcast, my dad is the smartest man I know. And he sent me the link for the definition of uh, intermittent rewards. So thanks, Dad. Uh, but Mark, that's exactly right. So um, about last year, for the first time in history, it became costless to trade stocks, zero dollars. Uh, the cost of trading options almost went to zero. And importantly, there were new platforms like Robinhood, uh, which uh, generally reducing costs for consumers is a wonderful thing and making it easier for people to invest is a wonderful thing. Uh, but Robinhood made a couple of choices that helped uh, addict their new customers, right? And remember, any new business, most new businesses uh, want to become monopolies and most of them would love to addict their consumers, right? Whether it's Facebook or tobacco companies, generally, uh, less competition and addicted customers is are positives for a business, even though they're not always great for the customers. Uh, so Robinhood made two choices. One was they were the driving force behind $0 trades, which all else equal, you would forecast that would lead to more trades. But secondly, they uh, very interestingly, on the same page to buy and trade stocks, they listed options. Uh, in, in, in the cases I've seen, even above uh, the, uh, the buy or sell option. So for example, if you looked up Microsoft, ticker symbol MSFT, you get the first option of, do you want to buy calls on this stock? And the second one, do you want to buy or sell the stock? And Mark, you're in compliance. Uh, what is it like when you sign up with Schwab if you want to be able to trade options? Uh, well, it, it's much more complex and takes longer to get approved for options. Is it a given? When you sign up on Schwab, are you green-lighted for options? No, 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 no. When you, when you open a brokerage account with Schwab or, I mean, any, any, of, the, any of the big companies, you know, Fidelity, E-Trade, um, you can open up a brokerage account as long as you're a, the, the you know, legal age. Uh, you meet a few small requirements uh, and the account's open. If you want to trade options, that's a whole separate application and approval process. Uh, you have to disclose your trading experience, not just in options, but in stocks, how many years, uh, number of trades per year that you do on average that you, would, that you could recall or estimate, and the dollar size of those trades. And then they get into much more complex issues, more minutiae, what type of option trading do you want to do? You know, is it, is it conservative? Or are you going to be writing calls against stocks you own? Um, or are you going to be using it for speculative purposes? And when you get when you check those boxes, they really take the compliance departments at, at the firms take a really hard look to make sure you're qualified and that you have the experience to do it. Um, 
And oftentimes, you know, the approval process is, doesn't happen. They don't get approved because they have no experience or they're a brand new investor um, or the strategies that they have disclosed on the application that they've employed in the past uh, don't really equate to what they're looking to do going, going forward. Uh, and it can be difficult. So the, the, the firms are very, are very careful and cautious in, in how and who they approve to trade. Uh, I, I just want to add one other thing. You know, we're talking about Robinhood. Um, you know, we don't want to sound like we're picking on Robinhood. Um, and, and even prior to Robinhood's existence, you know, you, it was it was very possible to open an account online and 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 trade options or other securities um, for years, right? Um, so the stories that we're going to talk about today uh, aren't brand new that just arose because of you know a, a new company called Robinhood. Wait, while you're talking about Robinhood, I actually have a question. Um, I was wondering, like, like you were saying, like Robinhood and other sites, like don't they they stop taking fees, or a lot of them stop like charging fees for um, trading. So how do they make their money? Great. Uh, so first off, great points, Mark. Uh, definitely not picking on Robinhood, although uh, they did make some decisions, which I, I do uh, fault them for. Um, and in Griffin, I'm going to answer your question. Um, the the one thing, Mark, uh, you didn't touch on is it, it can also be confusing to understand when you use options, uh, what your actual exposure is, right? When you introduce margin and the, the payoffs are so much more asymmetric, right? Oh, there's no question. You're dealing with leverage and you're dealing with potentially the equivalent of shorting stocks. Um, and you know you can set yourself up to have an unlimited amount of capital at risk. Right, and there, there was a, uh, no, that's right. And Mark, you remember the story of, um, I mean, a real, this, this is the most extreme story I've heard, um, and, and I think it'll lead to some changes, and it's one of the reasons, uh, again, I don't mean to pick on Robin Hood, but they, they were sued and had a settlement, although it was a small one, but there was a 20-year-old who was new to trading, I believe it was in Chicago, and the app mistakenly told him that he had a negative $730,000 balance because he was trading in options, and he ended up committing suicide. Yeah, yeah, that was last summer, summer of 2020. Yeah, that was that was awful. Yeah, and so to your point, Mark, taking a step back, if, if for new traders to get um, introduced to options, um, you know, my, my dad was a student of Ed Thorpe, and and he traded options and introduced me to the concept. And I'm a CFA charter holder, and uh, well familiar with um, the Black Scholes formula and what Ed Thorpe developed before Black Scholes and if anyone wants to talk options, you know, find someone like us or my dad. Uh, you know, it's worthwhile to really make sure to get the basics down uh, before you take any, uh, uh, before you uh, uh, jump into not only the deep end but the ocean. Would you agree with that, Mark? Oh, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, you, you, you know, the problem is, as I see it, um, you know, someone picks up their phone, they open their app. It's almost like playing Monopoly. Right, it's monopoly money. You don't really see it. You know, you, you link it to your bank account, you make a deposit, um, and you know, it, it it's not real. It doesn't appear to be real. But in that example you cited about the young man who, who committed suicide as a result of waking up one morning and finding out that he owed seven hundred thirty thousand dollars to 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 his broker, essentially. Um, I mean, if 
just brings it home that you know you can you can ruin your life um, if you're not careful you know financially at least okay and then to answer your question griffin um the uh, trading costs used to be the lion's share of brokerage firms uh profits whether it's charles schwab or uh charles schwab goldman sachs uh jp morgan or Robinhood. Um, so when trades went to zero, uh, what Robinhood does is they sell their order flow to firms, uh, most dominantly one in New York called Citadel. Um, so let's say you go to buy uh, Apple stock at, uh, I, I'm not, I can't remember the price off the top of my head, but let's say Apple's trading for $25 and you want to buy 100 shares. Uh, they let other firms know you want to make that buy. And then what they can do is they can buy it for uh, they can buy it for $25 and sell it to you for $25 and five cents and then make the spread. Uh, so what Robinhood does is they get paid by hedge funds and large financial institutions, uh, to acquire and transact your order flow. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank you. Sure thing. So, and that, it's a great point. Uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So if you have a free trade, uh, you're paying for it somewhere. Okay, and so Mark, I believe you have, uh, you, 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 we both have some great examples, but uh, you, you had a wonderful example from a few years ago of someone you knew who, who really had tremendous success day trading and turned it in. Uh, what, what's the saying? Snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, I believe you have a, a, a really good example of someone. Let, let's call him, I don't know, Matt. Yeah, and, and it's funny because um, the, the story you're talking about uh, is not about somebody who was brand new to, to investing, had a lot of experience and years uh, of investing and trading options. And this actually goes back to uh, pre-2008. And the markets, as you remember, as many on this, uh, on, who are listening will remember, the markets you know, leading up to 2008 were, were crazy. There was a lot of activity, there was a lot of volume, a lot of volatility. And this individual, decided to trade options um, and made well over, I think it was $1.1 million in profits from trading options, starting with a small, you know, a small bankroll, maybe 25 or 50 grand. That's a heck of a return. Uh, he realized at that point that the 1.1 million was great and that maybe he should, you know, take his profits off the table, which he did. He then took that money and put it into a portfolio of Blue chip, which is an old term for you know really well-known, well-capitalized, publicly traded companies, stocks like IBM and Procter and Gamble and Kimberly Clark and names that you know, okay, that pay dividends and are maybe more well-known for slower, steadier growth. But the point is, he took 1.1 million dollars in profit, okay. He put it into uh, 1.1 million dollars worth of stocks in a stock portfolio and you know the old adage is timing is everything three or four months later the markets in 08 started to, to collapse october of 08 and then leading into the spring of 09 and the 1.1 million dollar uh stock portfolio that he had was worth something along the order of 250 to 300 thousand dollars when all the dust cleared so he took fifty thousand dollars turned it into 1.1 million took that 1.1 million and reduced it to, let's say, 250,000. Here's the problem. 
the $1.1 million in profit that he made was taxable as short-term capital gains, tax at ordinary income rates. And he was a relatively high earner. So at his combined tax bracket of that $1.1 million, he had a tax bill of about $500,000 that he had to pay. Now, the $1.1 million that he had, he turned into $250,000. Now he's short $250,000 or $300,000 on his taxes. And it sent him into a spiral that lasted for years because what he, what he then started to do was trade more options and become very aggressive, high, you know, highly speculative trades. And the markets were you know, up and down. It looked like an EKG chart. And you know, when you're, you know, the old adage is you know, when, when, when you're frantic and you're chasing something, it, you know, Murphy's Law is it's never going to work out to your advantage, um, at least not short term. And he ended up digging a deeper hole. The $250,000 that he had remaining in, in, the, in, the, in the stocks, in the blue chip stocks, he lost about half of that value. So now he had $125,000 left, and he still had a $500,000 tax bill um, that was coming due very, very quickly. Incredible. And, and, you know, he, I'm not exactly sure how he worked it out with the IRS, um, but I think it's something that, that literally was, was a, a gray cloud that hung over him for years and years and years and years. And I know for at least five to eight years because I was familiar with the situation. Uh, you know, for disclosure, he was not a client. It wasn't anybody I worked with. Um, but I was, I, I was familiar, I was close enough to it to, to know what was going on. And it was awful. And uh, he couldn't see his way out. And, in a, you know, he was married, he had kids. I mean, it, it ruined him financially. And it took him probably 15 years, close, well, not 15, wouldn't be that far, but probably took him 12 years to work himself out of that hole and pay off that debt and to kind of get his life straight and his approach straight to investing. So I mean that look that's an extreme example, um, but it's it's a it's a real life example, and it just shows you how you can get caught up in a in your own belief that you you know what you're doing you're smarter than the market, and b let me tell you nobody is smarter than the market, right? Um, the markets it's like it's you know Steve you, early on you you talked about you know gambling and casinos and you know look those those big hotels and big properties and big gaming companies are big for a reason because they win, um, and they win almost all the time. It's that little percentage that, you know, everybody checking into the hotel and heading to the floor says, oh, I'm going to take them for, you know, I'm going to clean them out today. And, you know, maybe once every hundred years that works, that happens, but not, not regularly. So that's a sad story. It's a sad story, but very powerful, Mark. Um, and I, I, the fact that you highlighted this was an industry professional and uh, someone obviously smart, and like you said, in a top income uh, tax bracket, um, it's, uh, it, it's a very um, effective story. Yeah, unfortunately, it's true. And fortunately, and you know, if our, um, for our listeners, I think we should throw a few more of these examples out there because uh, to your point, Mark, what's pretty amazing is you don't have to think that long uh, to come up with uh, uh, just uh, uh, countless examples like this. I, when I worked in uh, New York, I met, uh, again, not, to, to your disclaimer, not someone I worked with and 
not someone I would call a friend, uh, but someone who had a desk in our office and a, a friend of um, a, a former colleague. Uh, this individual, I'll call him Danny, he uh, left New York, moved to Barcelona with his wife. Uh, I can't remember if he had kids or not, but he said, oh, I'm going to Barcelona and I'm just going to trade my portfolio and live off the gains. Uh, and sure enough, in about a year, he was back in Long Island and had lost all his money. Uh, that's, that's one example. Uh, another example, uh, I'll call this individual Donald. Um, uh, earlier this year, end of last year, uh, coronavirus is spreading on the, around the world, expected government stimulus. I was talking with this individual and they said, I'm really, you know, I'm really bullish uh, for gold prices. Fast forward 12 months, gold prices went up about 25% last year, uh, give or take a few percent. Um, I, I, uh, that might be slightly off, but gold prices were up more than 20% last year. And somehow, by trading futures, which have inherent leverage built into them, this individual, while betting on gold, lost all the money, ended up with a loan to their father, can't pay it back, and said to me basically that he thinks he'll get less of an inheritance from his father uh, because of the money he lost trading the gold market. So this individual, and this maybe is another important point, and Mark, you've properly identified uh, that day trading is gambling, not investing. Maybe a simple heuristic or simple rule here, Mark, is if your time horizon is less than a year and you're seeking financial payouts, that's gambling. And if you have a time horizon of three, five, 10 years, um, that could be considered investing. I, I know that's a little simple, but what do you think of that, Mark? Yeah, no, I think it's true. And, and Steve, you know, we, we, we spoke to somebody, you know, last year who, who reached out to us, okay, heard about our firm and call, contacted me and, um, you know, asked me point blank if we could guarantee 100% returns a month going forward. And my response was after I finished spitting out the coffee I was drinking as he asked that question, I said, what are you talking about? You know, I said that, that, you know, no, no, we can't and we don't and we never have. Um, but literally that was the expectation of this person. And it's like, you know, where did that come from? You know, you know a Netflix movie? I don't know. Um, but, you know, uh, it sounds like a great movie, but it's not real life. And, and I agree with what your, your description of it, 100%. Um, you know, investing is, is a long-term uh, process. And if you happen to get lucky, and, and a lot of times, you know, to get, you know, the, when leverage is employed, sometimes you get lucky, but you can't count on it. And it's certainly not a skill, it's luck. So, and that's gambling. You know, and, and that's a great that's a great segue, Mark. Um, if so, um, America has turned into a nation of day traders in 2020. Um, that I read a great academic uh, study that said when events like the coronavirus happens, uh, when when pandemics happen historically, it leads to greater risk taking. Uh, day trading would certainly qualify. Uh, there are hardly any sports, not that many worth watching, with no fans or limited fans, so people can't gamble. Um, the I've known plenty of adults who work who, who gamble a little on the side uh, for entertainment. Uh, there's no sports. There's uh, People are stuck at home. There's free trading. 
uh, a pandemic induces uh, risk-taking behavior. Uh, the advice of this academic study said, hey, don't rush to quit your job. Don't break up your marriage. You're probably going to regret it later when the fever, uh, metaphorically and literally in this case, uh, passes. So um, day trading, uh, Barbara Streisand talked in the New York Times how she's been day trading the pandemic. By the way, the last time she day traded was the late 90s. And she said she, quote unquote, lost a fortune. Um, another story, Mark, I used to work for a multi-billion dollar foundation. And the woman, the, the receptionist, confided in me once that throughout the late 90s, uh, she was day trading every day. Um, and, and not to denigrate, denigrate receptionists, but when I worked there in 2007, she was still the receptionist, not the, she didn't have her own foundation. Um, I don't think anyone who's gotten into day trading in 2020 should feel guilty or bad about it. Uh, and if the people in the minority who made a windfall, uh, what you had just said, Mark, if you made a windfall in 2020, realize you won the lottery, you got lucky, and it's not going to happen again. And you could spend the rest of your life, you could lose your house, you could damage your family if you, for here on ever out, try to chase the high of that initial win. So what I would advise people, and I'm sure Mark, you would agree, is appreciate that you got this gift, especially in a terrible year. Uh, contemplate how you can do something good with that money, whether it's secure your family's future, whether it's uh, provide a great uh, a house for your family, education, potentially do some charity with it, but understand you got lucky and maybe try to turn the experience you now have in the financial markets, go from gambling uh, to investing, right? Um, Warren Buffett, when he was 39 years old, his net worth was 25 million. Uh, and uh, today he's one of the richest men in the world because he pursues investing, uh, not gambling. Uh, when people go to Las Vegas, I don't know about you, Mark, I, I don't know anyone uh, there's no one in my circle who bought a house, started a company, or retired off their winnings from Las Vegas, um, with the parenthetical exception of Ed Thorpe and the people who have strategies like counting uh, blackjack cards. Um, th that's different. I would say that's investing. That's not gambling. Um, but when you go to Vegas and you want to have fun, everybody knows what you do is you say, you know, I'll gamble a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. And what do you always say in the beginning? You say, I'm perfectly happy if I lose all this money. The purpose is fun. No, no uh, reasonable person goes to Vegas thinking that they're going to chop items off their financial to-do list with a weekend in Vegas. So a wonderful plan would be if you hit it big this year and you got lucky, realize you got lucky, be humble, turn it into something secure and something good. And if you like day trading and you like the high, great. Set up a brokerage account specifically for that purpose. Seed it, depending how much you're worth, uh, seed it with a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, 10,000 bucks, for some people even a hundred thousand, and acknowledge that that is an account for fun. Do you agree with that, Mark? Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And um, you know, back, back to the, 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 the Vegas uh, you know, reference again, you know, you know the old story, Steve, about the guy who drove into Vegas in his $125,000 Mercedes and he came home in a $600,000 Greyhound bus. And, uh, you know, look, everything is relative. Um, I think our goal is to flip that scenario, right? 
and uh, have it the other way around. But um, yeah, what you said is, is true. Uh, you know, it, it, if it seems too good to be true, you know, it, it just, it's not realistic. Uh, it, it's, it's not. And, you know, everybody has a friend who knows somebody who, you know, went to Vegas and won $10,000 in a slot machine or, you know, won a poker tournament or, you know, turned 1000 into into 25000 at the blackjack table. And, and, of course, they stood up when they were at the, you know, the peak of their gains and walked away with it all. And we all also know that that's BS. And um, uh, it just doesn't happen. And it's certainly, certainly don't, don't mistake it for investing. Uh, you know, as you said, investing is, is, a, is a thoughtful, long-term uh, process and a long-term journey. So, you know, if you do it right, uh, look, there are no guarantees in life in anything. But at least if you approach it from a sensible point of view and work with, you know, professionals who are experienced and have a track record and what they tell you makes sense to you, it sounds reasonable, especially in, in the world in which we live in, uh, that that's a much better long-term path to take. And Mark, um, one more, I'm going to uh, ask you uh, to, uh, as they say in uh, the Bay Area, double click on a comment from earlier, and then uh, we can do the outro. And um, the, uh, the, I think we've um, hopefully uh, uh, demonstrated the difference between gambling and investing and made very clear we recommend the latter, but um, the former stays for fun. Um, you mentioned the difference between short-term and long-term, um, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, taxes on short-term gains and long-term gains. Let, let's refocus on that real quick. What, for that high-income earner in 2020, 2021, um, let's say they buy a stock and uh, it, it just run, you know, they get acquired or it becomes the hot stock and it just runs, you know, really big, really quick. Uh, let's think of a wild, unrelated, I don't know why example, but, you know, maybe you picked the stock of the year. Maybe you picked uh, Tesla or Zoom or Peloton. If you happen to do that in a brokerage account, Mark, um, let's let's focus in on what's the difference if, if you can hold that stock over the 12-month line to have it go long-term? What, what are we talking here? Well, you're talking, you know, in, in the tax world, long-term capital gains versus short-term. And, and, Anything that you, you buy and sell within a year, if there's a gain, a profit, it's taxed, that gain or profit is taxed uh, at your ordinary income rates. So if you're a high earner and you're in the you know, mid-30s federal tax bracket and you live in California, you could be 10% or north, uh, you're approaching 50% of that gain will be paid in taxes. If you can, if you hold it for over a year, year and one day, it's considered long-term, and the long-term capital gains rate um, goes starts at 15% and could be as high as 20% depending on your income. But that's, you know, that's a 30 to 35% spread in what you have to pay the government in terms of taxes. That's significant, you know. It's not significant if it's 100 bucks, but if it's, you're talking about, you know, 10,000, 100,000, a million, or multiple millions, that's real money, and that could be a, a real game changer for you. So, so if, if someone had uh, Mark, just hypothetically, a million dollar gain, what would be their the the what would be the uh, dollar amount they could save by getting over that long term line? It could be two hundred fifty to three hundred fifty thousand, maybe more. 
depending on their individual tax situation. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not CPAs, we're not giving tax advice here. However, just looking at the difference in the rates, you know, at a minimum of 45% versus potentially 15 or 20%. So that's- That was 350,000, correct, Mark? Yeah, yeah, yes. That's a material number. It is to me. So I would tell any of our listeners, if you are in the minority with a wonderful day trade and you haven't sold out of the shares yet, but you still hold them, and you want to know how to get across the long-term line, I'm not going to try to explain cashless callers to our listeners, but shoot us an email or a call and we'll be happy to uh, advise you on some of your options. Right. There, there, there are certain strategies uh, that if you're experienced and you understand how they work, can absolutely help you uh, minimize uh, or defer uh, a tax event. And, you know, it's definitely worth your while to take a look and have a conversation with somebody and understand how they work. Uh, again, you know, what's your time worth, right? For, for a phone call or a meeting that potentially could save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. To me, that's a no-brainer. That's perfect. Mark, do you remember, um, did you watch TV in the 80s and 90s, uh, shows like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Of course. Do, do you remember every show, whether it's Saved by the Bell, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, they always had um, the teasers for a very special episode. And usually it was, you know, the episode where Carlton got drunk or, um, you know, Zach Morris was tempted to partake in drugs. And, you know, the theme was always like to warn kids off of bad behavior. Right, right. Right. This has been a very special episode of the Mulholland and Cooperstock Asset Management Podcast. <laughs> it is. You know, this is our version of a PSA, kind of warning, warning our listeners, uh, you know, what, what not to do and, 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 and how to avoid uh, really setting yourself up for disaster. So it's our pleasure to do so. Griff, did you get the message? Yeah, I would say I got the message loud and clear. <laughs> Perfect. Mark, you want to take us home? Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Griff. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the hosts and guests that we have. Uh, nothing discussed today should be considered as investment advice, and please consult your own financial advisor and tax advisor whenever considering any investment. Um, if you have questions, and if you're one of our clients, please email us with the term podcast in the subject line. For more information about the podcast or the hosts and the firm, you may visit us at our website at www mk-am.com or you may email us at info at mk-am.com Thank you for joining us and look for our next podcast release very soon. Thank you.